Well, my name is Jason, and uh, I'm, I'm one of the, the associate pastors here at Emmanuel. And uh, about 10 years ago, I started into seminary. Uh, it was this really exciting season in my life. I felt like God had called me into ministry, and, and I was doing ministry at the time, but I wanted to equip myself and, and to grow. And so I started off at seminary, and one of the very first events that they had was this special dinner to welcome the new students to come, and they could meet the faculty and meet other new students. And so we went, and they held it in the seminary chapel, and we went in, and we kind of went through that whole dance of finding your name tag on the right seat and then meeting all the strangers at the table and making small talk and it's uncomfortable and, and we've all done it at weddings and whatever. So I'm sitting down next to this woman and she was a nice woman and we're sitting and we're talking and we need to know each other and through the conversation it came out that she actually worked at, at the seminary. She was in charge of this or that department. I don't even remember but we had a wonderful conversation. We're talking. We're in a similar life stage. We're talking about our family. We're talking about our kids and at one point in the conversation I asked a question that seemed totally safe at the time because we were at a seminary (laughs) i said so what church do you go to and the whole mood in the room changed and she looked at me she goes you mean what building do i go to what organization do i give my money to I was like, whoa, (laughs) hit a nerve. What bureaucracy do I empower that's killing the kingdom of God in America? What male-dominated, sexist, misogynist, hierarchical institution do we subject ourselves to? What rock concert for Jesus masquerading as the people of God do we go to? When she calmed down, she said, we don't go to church. We have our own house church. I went, oh. And I'm pretty sure at that point that my wife, Karen, I just kind of sat there and stunned like, wow, totally thought that was a softball question. Like, take it for granted that if you work at a seminary, you're a fan of church. (laughs) What what a weird way to start. And I remember just kind of driving home and going like, what was that about? What did I say? Like, how did I offend them? Because I sometimes do that and I don't mean to. But as I went through seminary, I met more and more people that at one point in their life felt called, felt like they wanted to be equipped, felt like they wanted to be in ministry, working in the church. But as they got involved in church, realized that it wasn't really what they signed up for. It wasn't what they had expected. That when they got into churches, they met people that wanted to argue about carpet colors and wanted to argue about style and wanted to argue about all these different things. And they said, we wanted to be involved in making disciples. We thought that was the point of the church I said, it looks like the church is a lot more involved in in making programs than it is in making disciples. And I thought, maybe they're on on to something. Maybe, Maybe we need to look at ourselves and figure out what that's about. Jesus, in Matthew 16, said to the disciple Peter, he said, Upon this rock I will build my church, and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. Notice that he didn't say, and upon this rock, you will build my church. You, Peter, will build my church, or you, disciples, will build my church. He says, I will build my church. And then in his last days of ministry with his disciples at the Great Commission, he made it really clear. He said, I will build my church, but you have a role to play. Your role is to go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's your role, but I'm building the church. Chris pointed out that there's this growing sense in Western Christianity, in American Christianity, that the way we've been doing church, the way we've been doing spirituality simply isn't working. 
I mean, never before in the history of the world have Christians had more resources, more great music and books and authors and videos. You could 24 hours a day stream great content. And yet never before have we had as as high a level of discontentment in the church. What do we do with that? And so churches all over the country are scrambling, trying to figure out how do they keep their people and how do we make this stuff more edgy or more cool or more relevant? How do we market this stuff? How do we modernize our music and our teaching and even our theology to make it more appealing so we can keep our customers? I'm not saying you can't be edgy. I can't, I'm not saying that we shouldn't try to make these things relevant. That I, I'm not saying we shouldn't be modern. But at the same time, I think I am saying that we can't let culture be the standard by which we judge what we do. We can't chase culture with what we're doing in, in these walls and, and in, these, in, in this assembly of people. It simply doesn't work. Instead, I think what we're trying to do, what we're trying to do in this series, what we're trying to do as a staff, what we're trying to do as elders and leaders in this church is to hold up Emmanuel against the light of Scripture and say, what does Scripture have to say? What does Scripture define the church as? And then what do we need to change about how we're doing church in order to ensure that we're not simply building programs? Programs are great and we need them, but we're not simply building programs. We're making disciples of Jesus Christ who make disciples of Jesus Christ. We're calling this series Growing because that is at the fundamental heart of what every Christian should be doing. What should be a natural result of the church in America? How do we get there? We're looking at what the Bible has to say about growth and how we grow and, and how we grow spiritually. And specifically, what is the role of the church? What is the role of what we're doing right now in making that growth happen, facilitating that growth as a community? And so we're looking at the words of Scripture. Quick Greek test. Don't put the slide up. <laughs> what is, well, in the first service, they put the slide up. And I'm like, you guys know this. And like, the slide is not on the screen. <laughs> What is, what is the Greek word most often used to describe the church in the New Testament? Ekklesia. Well done. Now we can put it up. Ekklesia. This is a, a word that appears throughout the New Testament whenever they're referring to the church. But you know what that word in Greek doesn't mean? Church. <laughs> Not in the sense that we think of it. It doesn't, it doesn't mean church building. It doesn't mean organization. It doesn't mean structure. It doesn't mean institution. For the original New Testament writers who used this word, it meant something a lot more like the assembly, the gathering. They had actually borrowed this word from just popular Greek culture. It meant something like a group of people gathered for a specific purpose. It was a pop culture reference that they took and kind of borrowed and made part of how they understood what it was to be a fellowship of believers. And then century later, when the New Testament was translated from Greek to Latin to English and it took a pit stop in Germany and... We, we took this word church and, and honestly that word means something more like house of the Lord. And it became at some point more about like the building and the institution. Like we go to church and something of the meaning was lost in translation. I'm guessing if I asked most people in this room to draw a church, it would be a little box with a roof and a steeple instead of a group of people. So why does that matter? It matters because the original meaning of Ecclesia wasn't about a building or an organization or an institution. It was about a gathering of people, an assembling of disciples who were the church all week long in every moment of their life, in their workplaces and in their homes. They were the church. And then the Ecclesia was them gathering together. 
together for specific purposes to worship and to celebrate security. I'm doing this. Here's the church. Here's the steeple. Open the door and see the church, (laughs) right? That was dorky. Let's use the video from the first service online. (laughs) We were never meant to just go to church. We were meant to be the church and not just in this context, but we were to be the church in every moment of life and every context into which we step. And then we were meant to gather regularly like this for very specific purposes so that we could worship, so that we could be encouraged, so that we could lift up one another. So what does that mean for us? I mean, does it mean that we get rid of all the programs that we get rid of all the institution, all the systems, all the order. We stop worshiping and that that woman at seminary was right. And we all just form house churches. Many have argued that, that, that the only really biblical model for the church was, was, is a house church. And others at the same time, conversely argue that, boy, you got to build the biggest thing you possibly can so that as many people as possible can experience the hope and the life and the renewal and the restoration that is in Jesus Christ. And there's this kind of false dichotomy that that forms that one of those is right and that the other is wrong. And I think what we've tried to argue, what we've discovered, what we've prayerfully sought the Lord on is, I think both are right. That the church was meant to be, the assembly was meant to be something that is big and beautiful and inviting where people can come from any stage of life and experience God. But that's not a complete picture of what discipleship is. That the church also must be small. That the church must also have context in which we are gathering in much smaller context to support and to love and to do the things that can only happen in a smaller group. And we see this borne out in scripture, in the book of Acts, which is often pointed to as the, the ideal model for what the Bible looked like in the early church. It says that all the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper and to prayer A deep sense of awe came over them all, and all the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. We don't often embrace that part of this. They sold their property and their possessions, and they shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day. And they met in homes for the Lord's Supper. And they shared their meals with great joy and generosity. All the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. Remember the phrase, enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. Literally every single day, thousands of people were being added to the church. Thousands of people were coming in through these big gateways. And experiencing God and coming to faith. And they were then going and worshiping together in the temple in big courts and temple courts, worshiping and praising God and being taught. And they were meeting in their homes and doing small gatherings. That is how scripture defines what the church is meant to be. So if church is defined as ecclesia or gathering, and scripture teaches us that that both big church, temple worship is important, and small church, home gathering, gatherings, meals together, those are important, then we want to make sure that we here at Emmanuel are defining church the same way, that we're defining membership the same way, that we're defining ecclesia the same way. 
We want to intentionally be building these big gatherings like we're doing here. And we want to do them really, really well so that kids are incredibly well trained, so that youth are incredibly well trained, that we are worshiping together, that we are serving and lifting each other up and being taught, going deeper into scripture. But we also want to be doing small gatherings really, really well. Both are equally important, but they serve very different roles in the life of the disciple. And so we want to value both what we're calling big church and small church. Recognizing that, that both are essential and critical to the growth of disciples, of making disciples and then growing as disciples. And so this is language you're going to hear a lot more often. These are images you're going to see a lot more often. And what we're trying to illustrate is not that big church is somehow about a building, because clearly it isn't, because we're not even, I mean, we are technically in a building, but it's not ours. It's not about the building. It's about gathering the large group together to experience what only the large group can do. Next week, Brandon's going to be talking a lot more about what small church is. But today, we want to talk about what big church is and, and why it matters. First of all, and this is in your notes, big church matters because it's scriptural. We see throughout all of the Old Testament and throughout all of the New Testament that the people of God in large numbers would gather regularly to be reminded of who they were, to realign themselves, to, to be pointed back to God and together to lift their voices. They did it in Acts, but they did it throughout all of the Old Testament as well. And they did it to be an example to the watching nations around them. God had clearly told Israel that they were meant to be an exemplar. They were meant to model to the world around them, to the nations around them, what it was to live as kingdom people, to live in the kingdom of God with God as ruler and king. So we think that there are two things that, that big church primarily accomplishes. We want to look at them today. We think that big church is both a gathering and a gateway. This is language that Chris has kind of used internally for a long time. And it really resonates with me that the church, big church really does two fundamental purposes. It is the gathering and it is a gateway. And why is it important to gather? I mean, wouldn't it be easier just to sit at home and watch good sermon videos or read good books or listen to Christian music or Christian radio or Christian movies or the plethora of other things that are out there? Wouldn't that be easier? It certainly would. I mean, and if we do have to gather, why wouldn't we gather, you know, with like a, a little tiny group of people that are all kind of just like us and look just like us and, and think all the same things we do and believe all the same things we do and are at the same life stage with us and vote the same way that we vote? Wouldn't that be easier? I think the biblical answer is yes. <laughs> that would be so much easier. But it wouldn't be the church. And it wouldn't make disciples. And it's not how Jesus did it. It wouldn't make us the ecclesia. According to scripture, we need each other with all of the differences that are represented in this room and beyond. We can't do discipleship on our own. There's no lone wolf Christians. And that feels uncomfortable. We really value sort of the self-made man, the person who's able to make themselves the self-made man or the self-made woman who took themselves out of nothing and made themselves great. But that is absolutely antithetical to the picture we get in scripture of what it means to be a disciple of Christ. You can't make yourself great in the kingdom. We have to do it together. Paul reiterates that in the writing of the church uh, to the church in Rome. And really throughout all of the epistles, you see these same themes that come out. He says, 
because of the privilege and the authority God has given me, I give each of you this warning. This is a message to individuals. He's saying, don't think you are better than you really are. Be honest in your evaluation of yourselves, measuring yourself by the faith that God has given us. I'll pause there just for a second. I think for many of us, particularly those who have been in the church for a long time, and I've been in the church for a long time, it's easy to start kind of going, you know what, I, I know all this stuff. This is old hat. Like, come on. I need to be fed. Feed me. Give me something of some substance. I think, I think part of what he's saying here is, boy, that, that sounds a lot like pride. And believe me, I'm saying that to myself too. Like, if that sounds judgmental, <laughs> um, that sounds a whole lot like, man, I don't need these other people. I know this stuff. Oh, give me something that matters. Verse 4. Sorry, that was, not, that was just a little parentheses, parentheses, rather. Just as our bodies have many parts, and each part has a special function, so it is of Christ's body. We are many parts of one body, and we all belong to each other. We all belong to each other. Last week, Chris brought this illustration that Paul had used in Ephesians 4 uh, of the body. So this is the second week in a row. And he actually brought out this anatomical dummy uh, where it, had, it showed like all the guts and the organs and, the, and it was gross. But it was, I think, a really good illustration because he started like yanking out the lungs like, we don't need this and we don't need this lung and what's a spleen anyway? And it's ridiculous, right? I mean, because we know that in order for a body to be healthy, it must be whole. It must have all those systems in place. And those systems not only have to be in place, but they have to be integrated, working together and, and, and supplementing each other and, and reacting to one another. And that's what health looks like in the body. And I think what Paul is saying, what Chris was saying, is that's what health looks like in the church as well, in the body of Christ. That's the, the metaphor that Paul is using here and throughout his writings to all of the early church. He's saying, you are the body and each of you has a special role to play. And each of you is needed. There are no unimportant parts. He literally says, we all belong to each other. That's a pretty radical idea. That when you come here, you come to give yourself to the community. Process that. We like to talk about being a place where we can belong. But even in saying that, don't we often mean where I can feel like I belong, like it's about me? Let's at least ask the question, what does it mean to belong to a community. Paul goes in even more depth in this body illustration when he's writing to the church in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians 12, he says, The human body has many parts, but the many parts make up one whole body. So it is with the body of Christ. Some of us are Jews, some are Gentiles, some are slaves, and some are free. But we've all been baptized into one body by one spirit, and we all share the same spirit. We're familiar enough, perhaps, with this verse that we skip over the fact that he is listing radically different places in society. He's saying some of us are Jews and some of us are Gentiles. That is saying we are racially diverse, ethnically diverse, spiritually and religiously backgroundedly diverse. He's saying some of us are slaves, some of us are slave owners, and some of us are slave free men. That is not what defines us. What defines us is one baptism, one spirit, one Lord, one Savior. But I think part of what he's pointing to is that diversity matters. Diversity in every sense of the word. He points to the importance of these specific things, but I think we can extrapolate this out to say that our politics, our worldview, our social status, all kinds of things 
need to be represented in this space. Because what unites us is not fundamentally those things. Those are very divisive. What unites us is Jesus Christ. What unites us is the Word of God. What unites us is one spirit, one baptism. I think diversity is an area that we need to work on. God's heart is for all people. And when we gather together, even with the diversity that's represented in this room, and I know that at least on political levels and socioeconomic levels, there's a tremendous amount of diversity in this room. Even that amount of diversity in this room that worships together, that sits under the authority of Scripture together, when we do that, we are modeling and we are experiencing the diversity of the kingdom of God. We're the kingdom of God, the diversity of the heart of God. And the bigger the group, the more diverse the group, the more that we are experiencing God's heart for all people. All the parts need all the other parts. And then Paul continues. Our bodies have many parts and God has put each part just where he wants it. How strange a body would it be if it only had one part? Yes, there are many parts, but only one body. The eye can never say to the hand, I don't need you. The head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. I think in American Western Christianity, there is sometimes a little bit of, of the roles that feel important or, or highlighted or are in the spotlight in roles that feel less needed. I think it's very easy to come to the American church and feel like, man, this staff has got it. The band is killing it or the, the teaching or boy, there's great kids programs or whatever. I'm not really needed. I've talked to a lot of people over the years that came to a church and said, boy, we really wanted to plug in. But it was really obvious that we weren't needed there. Let me say, if that has been your experience here, that I'm sorry. You are needed not because we need to fill a classroom or, or needed because we need more musicians. You are needed because all of us are needed. We are the body. We need one another according to Scripture. And all of it has a purpose that goes beyond sort of singing four songs and hearing a lecture. Paul says, this makes for harmony among the members so that all the members care for each other. If one part suffers, all the parts suffer with it. And if one part is honored, all the parts are glad. All of you together are Christ's body and each of you is a part of it. That last line, all of you together are Christ's body. I think there's significance in that word. He doesn't say, and each of you, he said that earlier. He says, all of you together are the body of Christ. We can't understand this as individuals. We need to understand that when we are together in harmony, then we are the body of Christ at work. And if you want to be a part of Christ's body, then you have to be a part of the ecclesia. We have to do it with each other and for each other. And then Paul illustrates why we do this. And it gets back to that idea of they, they lived with the good, they enjoyed the goodwill of all the people. Paul says, on top of all of these things, not only do you benefit from experiencing needing other people and being needed, not only do you to experience that, that everyone's getting to serve according to their gifts, but this has an impact on the world around us. He ends chapter 11, I'm sorry, chapter 12 by saying, but now let me show you a way of life that's best of all. And then Paul opens up into what has become known as the best wedding poem ever. 1 Corinthians 13. We've all heard it probably a million times at different weddings. Let me read it for you again. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It's not irritable. It keeps no record of being wronged. 
doesn't rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith. It's always hopeful and endures through every circumstance. It's a beautiful picture of ideal marital love. But that's not why Paul wrote it. That's not what he was talking about. He was saying this was supposed to be a picture of the church. This should be the picture of the church, of the assembled body of Christ that the world sees when they look at us. This should be the reputation of followers of Christ, disciples of Christ. When they see us, these are the characteristics that we should be modeling. I think one of the main purposes of a big church is to together demonstrate to our community what the character of God is, the character of Christ is, to what it means to live in the kingdom. Ours is the same mission that God gave to Israel, to be exemplars to a watching world of what it means to live with God as king, what it means to live in God's kingdom on this earth as it is in heaven. And Paul is reiterating that claim. He's saying to the church in Corinth, this is how you must live. And for them, he's saying it not just as instruction, but as correction. The church in Corinth, you know, was this new church that was trying to figure out all these things. And they had quickly started arguing over carpet colors. They had quickly started arguing over who was most important and what role was most important and what things were most valued and who should be in and who should be out. And Paul is saying to them, you're screwing this up. When you act this way, you are sending a strong message to the community around you about who Christians are and what it means to be a follower of Christ. You are jeopardizing not only your own reputation in the community, you're representing Christ in the community and you are jeopardizing his reputation in the community. When we gather, when we proclaim that we are the church of Christ, we are sending a strong message to the community around us. We're either inviting them to experience God with us or we're turning them off. The big church is a gathering. The big church is also a gateway. I think what Jesus knew, what Paul knew, what the apostles knew, and what we all too often forget, that big church, what we do on Sunday mornings is a gigantic front doorway to our community. It is the primary way that people experience who we are it's, it's one of the ways that people who are new and or maybe not yet followers of Christ experience who Christ is and who his followers are. It's a gateway into the kingdom of God. If we remember that it is. There are people in the community center each week who are new. There are people who are here right now working out. I actually had a conversation after the last service with a guy who literally walked in for the very first time during this talk. I'm like, dude, I'm sorry. It's kind of a family talk. <laughs> there are new people every single week who have not yet experienced our invitation to experience God with us. Do we care? Do we care or are we comfortable with the friends we have? Comfortable with the size we have? Comfortable with the gathering that we currently have? I mean, it's fine if that's who we want to be. But then we're not being the church. We're not being the ecclesia. We're not being disciples of Jesus. I think at that point, we are being the dead organization, the social club, the institution that the church is sometimes accused of being. Nelson Searcy, in his book Fusion, which we as a staff are all reading right now, uh, has this quote that I absolutely love. 
He says, the church is a family expecting guests. I think there's a lot in there. I mean, the church is a family, yes, who loves each other and cares for each other and occasionally squabbles, but then works it out because you're family. But we're a family expecting guests. I know in my house, when we are expecting guests, it is an all-hands-on-deck operation. Like, kids, we need those boots out of the front doorway. We need all the coats that are currently on the hooks to be moved to your rooms because we need room on the hooks for guests' coats. Kids, we need to clean up the food that's all over the family room right now because that's disgusting. <laughs> like, it's all hands on deck. We know that we are a family who's expecting guests, and therefore, every, therefore everyone has a role. And our house is going to look a little bit different because we have guests coming. We want to honor them. We want to welcome them. We want to send the message that we are ready for them. So I think we have, we have some work to do as, as a community. And I got to say, I want to pause because in some ways this is a family talk. So if you're new with us, I, I do apologize. Like today we're kind of talking about family business, but um, there are many within this community who are absolutely knocking this out of the park, who every week are showing up and, and they're doing the work and they're setting this place up and they're doing so much and their whole lives are oriented toward being that exemplar, being that example to the world of what it means to live for Christ. And for you, I say, well done. You can take the next couple of minutes and just zone out. Go to your happy place. I'll tell you when we're done. For the rest of you, uh, for me, for us, I think we have some work to do. And I think there's some next steps. First of all, I think we need to get the house and ourselves ready for guests. I think we need to ask ourselves, are we even aware that today, right now in this room, we have guests? Don't look at them. That makes it awkward. (laughs) And now I just made it awkward. We do every week. Every, every single week, we have new people that are coming here that are experiencing maybe church, maybe Christ for the very first time. Are we even aware of it? And if we continue to grow, if we continue to be the ecclesia, if we, if we get really good and the Holy Spirit blesses this and we are loving each other in ridiculous ways and our reputation in our community is becoming known for how well we love each other and how that love just pours out of this community then we're going to continue to grow. We're going to continue to see new faces that are being drawn. An analogy that a friend of mine used that I absolutely love was like, this is God's nursery and he's not going to send his kids here if it's not a safe place. But if we're a safe place, then God is going to send spiritual infants into this place who can experience God maybe for the first time. Are we ready to receive them? Because if we are, it's going to mean some adjustments. It's going to mean that the Emmanuel that many of us have known for years is going to change. And it's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be hard to see this thing that we've known and love turn into something else. And that's okay. That's real. I think the question is, are we as a family ready to lean into those and, and to talk about that and to address those very real feelings? Yeah, we come together as a family for our own needs and so that we can be taught and we can be grown and we can be nurtured. But we also come together for another reason, which is so much bigger than that. We come together so that we can serve, so that we can uh, expand the knowledge that we have into the next generation. We come so that we can model to the people that are here what it is to live this out. Dr. Howard Hendricks from Dallas Theological Seminary had a quote that I also really love, and I think encapsulates a lot of this. We begin to grow when we take responsibility for the growth of another person. I think there's truth in that. I know that when I'm doing a mentoring relationship with somebody, suddenly I'm a lot more aware of how am I doing at this? I think coaches are aware of how am I doing at this? How am I understanding this in ways that they wouldn't be if they weren't accountable to that person that they're trying to to grow up. There's something magical that happens when we start investing our resources into other people. We grow. Secondly, I think the second thing we need to do is stop being evaluators 
of church. And it is, it is so countercultural. I was just talking to somebody this weekend about this. In every other place in life, we go to service providers. I don't teach my kids basketball. I send them to a coach and I put them on a team to teach them about basketball. I don't uh, try to figure out my own medical situation. I go to a doctor and I evaluate that doctor on how well they're able to you know, tell me how I'm doing. By the way, as a side note, I recently had a physical and the doctor said I'm a phys- uh, that I'm a picture of health. I said, you are a bad doctor. <laughs> in every other context in life, we go and we evaluate that, that group's ability to meet our needs. And so it's not, confu- I mean, it's not surprising that we bring that same outlook when we come to church. How is this place doing at meeting my needs? It's understandable, but it's not biblical. So I'd say stopping evaluators of church. We bemoan the fact that the church has been reduced to an institution and organization but then we evaluate it as if it were. We come and we evaluate the sermon or the worship music of the kids program. And I'm not saying that we don't want feedback. What I'm saying is come with a different frame of mind than, than you go to any other place. Come ready to engage. Come, come primarily to participate and to contribute and to serve and to grow as a result. Be a part of the solution. At least to my next point. Stop dating church. Make an honest woman of her. Pick a church, a gathering, an ecclesia, and get involved. Stop coming to consume church. Instead, come to be consumed, to, to be a part of the body, to belong in every sense of the word to a community, to a family. Get involved. You are needed. You are needed because God has uniquely gifted you and positioned you and trained you. And if we have not done a good job of helping you identify those gifts, I apologize, and we want to get better at that. But you are needed. Pick a church and become a member of that family. We hope that it's here with an Emmanuel. That's where my family has chosen. And we hope that you will too. But even more, I can honestly say we want you to be a part of a healthy church. Prayerfully find one, seek it out, and then commit. Be a part of the family. There's no perfect church out there. That's part of the beautiful messed up plan that Jesus chose for accomplishing his will in this world. He said he would build his church using us. A bunch of screwed up, sometimes selfish, broken people who are petty and dumb and sometimes get caught up on carpet colors. If you're coming to ECC and it just seems perfect and we haven't disappointed you yet, don't worry, we will. Because every church does at some point. Choose now ahead of that. At whatever church you land at, choose to commit and just be a part of that. If they're not teaching heresy, be a part of the family. Stick with it. And thirdly, lastly, know that big church is really, really important. But it's not enough. It's not enough to make disciples. It can't be a complete picture of how we become disciples. And again, that's out of context for us. Because in so many other places, you know, we think we want one-stop shops to deliver all the things we need. And church simply can't be that. Not big church. We need to come together as big gatherings, as big ecclesia, and serve one another. But we need so much more. Big church is great, but there's elements of spiritual growth that it simply can't address, not adequately. And that's okay. That's by design. I think sometimes the dissatisfaction with big church that we feel comes at least in part from wanting it to be something that it was never meant to be. It was never meant to be the only place that we experience this. The early church was the church all week long in every context of their life. 
We have to exercise this stuff outside of this place. We have to go deeper with one another. We have to take what we experience here and bring that out into our workplaces and into our schools and into our neighborhoods and into our parenting, into every facet of our life. If we want to be disciples of Jesus, that's what the early church did. That is what the disciples of Jesus did. And as we'll learn more about next week, that is a, a bit of what we want small church to be. A, a, an organized institutional plan for how we can take these things we experience here and integrate them into all of life. I think the relationship between big church and the rest of life is something like this. Uh, we have to breathe, right? In order to receive life-giving air, we have to breathe in. So I, I want to do a little practical exercise right now where we all breathe in together and then hold our breaths on the count of three. Are you ready? One, two, three. Hold it. Keep holding it. Keep holding it. Keep holding it. We can't, right? You can let it go. If anyone's still holding their breath, people are turning blue over here. We have to breathe in in order to leave, uh, to live, but we must also breathe out. If we fail to breathe out, we die. That's our relationship with the church. We breathe in, we come to be filled and renewed and restored, but then we breathe out that life into the community. Or maybe it's something like this. Part of a healthy growing body, since we're using that analogy, is taking in good nutrition. We need to eat the right things. We need good, nutritious input. But if all we ever have is input, no matter how much good food we eat, we're not going to be healthy because part of the equation is not simply what I'm putting in, but what my output is as well. If I'm not exercising and I'm just eating a ton of really, really good food, I'm not going to grow. I will grow. <laughs> I'm kind of growing. We must exercise this stuff in order to experience health and nutrition is just part of it. Is it the dietitian's fault if we eat good food, but then we don't exercise to an experience growth? No. Maybe it's, maybe it's a little bit like this. I'm not a sports guy particularly, but what if a football team just loved going into the locker room and they loved hearing the pep talk and they loved meeting with the coaching staff and reviewing the plays and watching film and meeting all the athletic trainers to patch up their wounds and to, to bind up their sore ankles? What if they loved just sitting around talking about the game and drinking Gatorade? They loved getting ready to play, but then they never went out on the field. At some point, that becomes not a team anymore. That's like a... Locker room group fan. That's not a team. I mean, the locker room is really, really important. We need to be able to come together and get reminded of what it is that we're doing, to get reminded of the plays that we've planned, to, to run drills, if you will, to, to go to the athletic trainers and get patched up when we're beaten up for playing the game. But then we can't stay in the locker room. We have to be willing to take it out onto the field and actually play the game. I think that's the relationship between big church and the rest of life. Next week, Brandon, like I said, is going to unpack what that breathing out looks like, what it means to get out on the field and actually play the game. He's going to be talking about the fact that as we grow bigger, as God continues to bring new people in, we need to simultaneously be growing smaller, not just so that our experience can be intimate and we continue to have deep relationships, but so that we are actually mentoring and discipling and building up new disciples in Christ. So don't miss that. I hope that someday I get to have another conversation with that woman that I met that first night of the seminary. I hope that we can sit down and I can and say a number of things to her. I hope that I can say to her, you know what? I think a lot of the things that you observed about the church in America were probably right on. 
There were things that I think we just need to own and say, yeah, there's areas that we have not done a good job on this. I think I would say to her, you know, I think your diagnosis in some ways was right, but your prognosis is way off. There's hope because the church is the bride of Christ and he loves her and he promised it would be her, him that would build her, that he would build the church. If we faithfully pursue him and sit under the authority of scripture, then he will build the church. All we need to do is go and make disciples. All we need to do is go and be in deeper and deeper relationships with one another, pointing each other to Christ. There's hope because God is the God who uses broken vessels who uses people that screw it up and get caught up arguing about carpet colors. He can make that into something beautiful. I hope I get the chance to invite her to come and experience God with us. Let me pray for us. Jesus Christ. Um, we come to this place for all the reasons we talked about today, that we might experience teaching and worship and, and growing and all those different things. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would now take what I've said and these words that we've sung and all that's happened this morning and turn it into something in the hearts of these people that, that is your word, that you would speak and that you continue to teach us. That you continue to, to give us a sense of what it is you're calling us to, what you're inviting us to experience, God. Our genuine desire as a church is that we would be uh, an example, a picture of what you demonstrated for us, what you've shown us in your word, God. So we pray you'd make that a reality in us. Bind our hearts to you. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.